it feels like the closest you can get to an improv gig. Yeah. Where you're only playing Beethoven. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Bye, chowder stranger. You're the smartest man I ever see. Come right in. Hello and welcome to Classical Music Now, the classical music podcast by No Dice Collective. My name is Joe Chesterman March. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad you've chosen to listen to this podcast. It's with the Vonnegut Collective. Specifically, I'm talking to Gary and Gemma. They both play for the BBC Philharmonic, Gary on trumpet and Gemma on violin. And we find out that that's actually where the group was formed, on a tour in sunny Spain, I believe. I'm meeting them at the Bridgewater Hall just before a BBC Philharmonic rehearsal. So we talk a little bit about that to start with. We also talk about how I miss here Diane Straits for Dire Straits. Oh yes, it's a good one. See if you can pick that out. We also talk about the legendary Tilda Colgate, the fundamentals of what makes a good piece, which has been really useful for me as I've been trying to find my own my own compositional outlet over the lockdown. I'm sure many of you have as well. So I hope you find that bit useful too. Uh, we also talk about how Gemma got tricked by Gavin Osborne into improvising solo on stage. Gavin Osborne comes out very well in this podcast, and I mean that quite sincerely. And also Gary's illustrious new music past in Porto. This podcast was originally going to be about the Ades Piano Quintet 48 Hours project that the Vonnegut Collective were doing, based off the idea that the Ades Piano Quintet takes 48 hours to rehearse. And they commissioned Mr. Rennie to write them a new piece based on sitting through the whole 48 hours rehearsal process to try and capture that experience. So that was meant to be happening on the 22nd of May. Obviously, that's not happening anymore, but I look forward to hearing it when it does come to light. All right, I'll let you get on with it. Next episode, we've got Illy Quain of the illustrious Menine Quartet. That was a lot of fun to record. So hopefully that brings you some, some, some joy in this unprecedented time. So without further ado, Gary and Gemma of the Vonnegut Collective at Bridgewater Hall. Thank you both for coming to talk to me. I know you're very busy. You're in the middle of your BBC Phil rehearsal. Um, how's it all going? It's good. It's really exciting to have Omer here. He's yeah. a relatively new principal conductor. Yeah. Mm. He's um, awesome, isn't he? He is really awesome, yeah. He makes concerts that should be normal and formulaic really Not. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Not mm. that. Yeah. Yeah, he <laughs> um, does. It feels like the closest you can get to an improv gig. Yeah. Where you're only playing Beethoven. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, you just you feel like you're making it up as you go along. I feel like he, yeah. What do you think? I don't feel like he's making it up as he goes along because I feel like it's he's it's really well thought through. Yeah. But it's but he's it also feels like he's not kind of tethered to any mm. previous interpretation of a piece that's been played. Totally. A lot of times, and that feels really exciting. Untethered. Untethered. Omar Welber. Untethered. <laughs> That sounds great. That sounds like kind of what you want in a conductor. Yeah. Like, yeah. it always feels fresh every time you're playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, he, he started kind of last year, but we haven't done that much with him. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things we did was we did the creation, Haydn creation at the proms. And he improvised his cadenzas and just threw the orchestra totally, which was great Brilliant. and scary. Mm. But it was like, okay, right, this is what we're in for. And then he did a Mozart piano concerto. Um, and again, he improvised the cadenzas, but he got us to join in the improvisation. And so one of them was, 
a jazz improvisation. One was a klezmer improvisation. One was a kind of a folky kind of polka kind of, I don't know what it was. Mm. And his, but his justification for it is really good. It's, you know, he kind of takes the, the motifs from the concerto and he analyzes them. And like Gemma said, he's, he's really certain about what, how he sees them, you know, mm. what, what's the, what's this turn of phrase. And he goes, oh, this, this one sounds a bit like a little jazz swing number. So let's do a five minutes of swing in the middle of a Mozart concerto. That's so cool. Yeah. Cool. It's not for everyone. Mm. And I don't, don't want to hear it like that every time, mm. but like, let's give it a go, you know, let's, let's see. Yeah. And it can just be simple things as well. Like the, the music is written in four, four at the same tempo for 13 minutes, but he feels like this bit has got more energy. This yeah. bit's going somewhere. <clears throat> and it's, it's like he takes each section of music in its own right. It doesn't matter that it's got a tempo marking at the start of it. It's like if it's a new section of music, he'll, he'll, he'll play that at the speed and in the style that that music is like asking for mm. in his imagination. So it, um, there's always a really sort of strong musical justification, even when something might seem unexpected or outside yeah. of what's been written. Yeah. And it's did really, you say this is really the leader cool. of the orchestra or the conductor? Conductor. The conductor. Chief conductor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, is that? I never know what people's <laughs> titles <laughs> are. I don't know. Big, big wig, wig man. Big wig. Big man wig. with big wig. <laughs> He's got a wig. He's got great hair. Is that a wig? Is his beard a wig? <laughs> like George Clooney in uh, <laughs> He's cool anyway. He's, wow. he's fun he's to a, work he's with. He's a good one. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so he was, was he conducting at the same time as he was doing his own concerto? Yeah. yeah. So he was directing from whichever keyboard instrument he happens to have in front nice. of him at the yeah. time. Yeah. And the creation, he was, he was leading the choir from the harpsichord the and then the pianoforte for the second half wow. because evolution, you know? Right. Yeah. Actually, and that's this, really cool. It it's was really amazing, cool yeah. Thing. And and the choir was wasn't it to do yeah, go on. The choir was kind of put together of um music students, music college level, younger than that even. Mm. That had never sung in a choir with an orchestra before and they didn't have a conductor. Mm. They just had this guy kind of nodding and making faces at them. It was <laughs> so it was, it was really edgy, exciting. you know, it was really it was really risky. He takes risks. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. It's, yeah, it's fun. That sounds like me this morning when I was conducting my choirs. I'm just constantly making faces at them. <laughs> <laughs> I've been for the best. Uh, now, big yeah. nod. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like choir conductor facial expressions is its own thing. In its yeah, own it's right. not in itself, isn't it? It's yeah. like a meta skill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like this morning. So I was in a choir competition this morning with three different choirs. And I think with each performance that I had with a different choir... I started making sillier faces at them because nice. <laughs> they, they just weren't smiling enough. So yeah. as well as doing a smiley face, I do like a really sad face and yeah. that, that's where you get them. Yeah. But that, I mean, maybe that's just choir faces 101 and I'm at beginner <laughs> level. There's like so many more levels. You, you probably like, you'll stretch your face by, by, cause you have to kind of, it's like that thing that people say about conductors is that they have to convince the orchestra in front of them that they know more than all of them put together. Like this is an old phrase. Mm. It's, like, it's a bit, mm. you know, it's a bit old fashioned, but I feel it's the same with choir, except it's facial expressions. So you have to kind of like <laughs> take on the joy that you want, you know, it could be a 60 piece choir. Yeah. So you're like, <laughs> massive style. you know, the audience can't see you, but actually they should train a camera on you and just have that. And that should be an element. I mean, I'm going to get involved in choir compositions from now mm. on. Um, in my youth orchestra, we used to sometimes play with the local youth choir and the lady who ran, ran it, um, used to hold, I can't remember her name. She was brilliant though. And she used to hold up pictures. Huh? Was it Tilda? It wasn't Tilda. No. 
Is that just testing, yeah. I guess? Yeah. But, uh, no, brilliant. <laughs> Could have been. Could have been, Tilda. Was, was it go Jenny? with your gut. It was Jenny, it wasn't was it? Jenny. <laughs> how, long, how long have you got, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go, for, go through the alphabet. Just say all the names yeah. and was then just it? Right Yeah. Andre. Aardvark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tilda Aardvark yeah. used to hold up um, pictures of, like, Colgate tubes of Colgate and big like smile like smiling faces and and all these brilliant things but um Amazing. it was really memorable as a kid to be like how is a picture of Colgate inspiring these people <laughs> they would always make them yeah. laugh and get their teeth out it's that's good. such a great thing to do in a youth choir as well <clears throat> yeah it was fantastic. because like you cool. say that's a story that you'll never forget yeah like mm. that's one of those memorable like yeah. young musical moments really that's good. great hmm. Colgate we used to call her Col- Colgate lady that's why I don't remember her Tilda Colgate <laughs> yes good um do you, do you agree with that idea that the conductor needs to know as much as everyone put together in the, I suppose it might be I, a bit impossible. I think that's a, I, I don't know about it. No, no. I think they it's need nonsense, to, I think they need to be as strong in their convictions as everyone in the room. Hmm. But I don't, I think for a conductor to even suggest they might know more. Do you know what I mean? Oh, oh hello. We've locked this door. We've locked this door. Go on, you, you open it. Shall I do it? Yeah. Do I'll take no, I'll, I'll, I'll take the flak. Oh, there's no one there. I mean, that's dark. Oh, Tilda's back. Tilda's back. Back again. She, she knows that I didn't brush my teeth well enough this morning. Um, um, we should have put a sign on the door, shouldn't I? Yeah, I should. Yeah. I've just written future notice. Sign, <laughs> sign, sign on the door. door. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how long have you guys been in the BBC Phil? Have you kind of gone between different orchestras or what's your career we, path been? Well, we started around the same time. I started maybe six months, six before, months before Gemma. And because we didn't know each other before then. Um, and that was like six years ago. Seven years Seven ago. Seven exactly. years ago. Mm. Yeah. Crikey, time flies. And yeah, I used to freelance with this orchestra and other orchestras before that and managed to, I, I just basically sort of ground them down. I just kept turning up until in the end they just gave me a job. It's like you, you, you kind of hit around. Like you've played all the pieces um, at this point. We might as well just give you a yeah. job. Just, just yeah. for listeners, that is yeah. factually quite inaccurate. <laughs> <laughs> the truth lies somewhere in between. <laughs> um, uh, what's what's yeah. your version of events, Gemma? What of, really of, Gary's life. of Gary's life. No, yeah. I'm not going to do that, but you should talk about Remix. Yeah. And life as a freelance trumpet yeah, player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Rather than just turning up when you're not wanting. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so when did, when did you start? Me? Yeah. 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 I started in November. November. Seven, well, yeah, so six and a half years ago. Yeah. Okay. And had you played with various different orchestras, like similar to Gary, or you just landed it? Yeah, I'd done bits and bobs. I hadn't ever freelanced with oh, yeah. the Phil before I got the job. So mm. coming on on trial was my first experience of being here, which was terrifying yeah. um, as you might expect but um i i already had a part-time job with manchester camerata by then and i'm still i'm still there now so i kind of juggle between the three things i guess so camerata bbc and and the vonnegut collective mm. um that sounds yeah. really busy yeah it can be yeah. yeah it's nice mix though but we we discovered a bit of a new music itch um which is <laughs> why i was going to encourage <laughs> gary to talk about um remix ensemble uh, yeah, so so before I joined the BBC Phil, I was in a, a new music ensemble uh, called Remix Ensemble, which is based in Porto, Portugal. 
Um, and it wasn't a full-time job. It was kind of part-time, about half my time. But I did that for 13 years. And you were in Portugal? Yeah, I used to commute wow. from Manchester. Okay. Um, it's quite a long commute. And not daily. Not daily. So it's just project-based. Mm. Um, but it was great. And I kind of, I was very lucky because I, I, I studied at the RNCM and then walked out of there and just landed this job. It's kind of interesting, I think, how it came about because someone had heard that I was the guy that would like, have a go at playing anything. Mm-hmm. I was a new music guy or just, just open-minded um, because of a few things I'd done at college. I did all the new music. I played Hans Werner Henze's trumpet piece, which is part of his Requiem, which took a long time to learn. It was a big thing. And I did Berio Sequenza and all that kind of mm. you know, new music trumpet, sort of quite challenging things. So I just got this opportunity and was lucky enough to get that job. So I kind of spent 13 years playing all the kind of big 20th century repertoire. Berio and Xenarchis and Lachenmann, all those guys. Yeah. And I loved it. It was a real challenge. It was hard, but it was great. And we were, I was very lucky as well because it was a new group. So it was kind of young and fresh and exciting, but it had all the backing behind it and amazing conductors. So our principal conductor was Peter Rundle from the Ensemble Modern. If you listen to like Frank Zappa's Yellow Shark album, he's the guy that Frank Zappa introduces to come on stage. Ooh. And, and I'd, I'd kind of grown up listening to that. Mm. So then I got this job and it was with those people and it was like, okay, right. This is new music royalty. Mm. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Yeah. Um, it was an amazing experience. And, and, and is, it, is it still going? It's still going, yeah. In fact, yeah. they're going to be 20 years old this year. Yeah. That was a big, big anniversary. It was really nice. And one cool thing they used to do was that every year would have a composer in residence. Um, and it was kind of, you know, really big name composers like Magnus Lindbergh or Pierre Boulez. And... There would also be a nationality for every year. So kind of this year is Italy year. Yeah. And you just play all of Berio's music and all of Donatoni and all of Francesconi. Mm. And that's a real education. Shirino. It's a yeah. it was a big education, yeah. I used to this was in the days of um of, of music still being sent around on paper. And every few weeks I'd get a big envelope through the post, <laughs> a big thick envelope. Yeah, an A one size. Yeah, and my heart would just start racing. <laughs> and it was just like, Wow, this is hard, you know. And then you'd spend a few weeks trying to learn it and then go and play it and then on to the next thing. Mm. Yeah. So that's that was kind of my Initiation oh. into new music, yeah. Yeah. So you must have like this huge back catalogue of stuff that you're at least aware of mm. and you probably do. know reasonably amazing. well. You do have quite an encyclopedic knowledge yeah. of I mean, yeah, I, I, I felt like the, the, the programming of it was was really to play the the big works. There wasn't so much of a pressure to play to play anything. There wasn't really an agenda with the programming. Um, of course, we played some Portuguese music, but mainly Emmanuel Nunes because he's kind of the only really super established 20th yeah. century composer. Uh, and also, we we worked with young composers and did some workshops and that sort of thing. But it was it just Porto was this, the European capital of culture in 2001, and they got given a load of money, and they used it to expand their orchestra in the city from a chamber orchestra to a full symphony orchestra. They built a massive concert hall. Uh, that was made by an architect, architect called Rem Koolhaas, who was a very cool Dutch architect. So it's, it's an amazing building. And they set up a new music ensemble, full-time, a pretty much full-time new music ensemble, a part-time big band uh, and a part-time choir. And that's pretty much it. Oh, and they fixed a few roads. 
<laughs> that's pretty much it. Yeah, that's amazing. all they did. And yeah. it was just incredible, yeah. Yeah. And I think what's impressive is that it's still going, actually. Mm. Yeah. Because you can, you can imagine that injection happening and then it all leaves. But mm-hmm. yeah. to be able to keep it going afterwards is really great. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think they've, they've, you know, it's been tricky in, the, in recent years. You know, mm. Portugal, just like Spain, has been hit, you know, really hard. Um, but there's, a, there's enough of a foundation there with this building, you know, this building that kind of houses... Mm new music and new art that's once you've got that going it's a bit like the bbc in a sense we've got a purpose-built studio here that records an orchestra fantastically so hopefully there'll always be an orchestra in that <laughs> building you know yeah i remember some someone was saying about um you know in terms of funding in the uk is that if you have a building or you are just a building then it's, it's just so much easier not easy by any means but it's so much easier to kind of sustain that because it's like well look we've got this building yeah what's yeah. what's going to happen to the building like mm. it's a, it's it's a nice physical representation of that commitment to the mm. arts where if you then do leave it, everyone passes the building with the closed sign on it. And it's yeah, like, yeah. oh, you know, why, what happens to Art that? Art failed here. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. oh, a good name for a piece. Art failed. Yeah. Oh, sad Art piece. failed here. Yeah. That would yeah. be sad. And so do you have a, a new music background at all, Gemma? <laughs> um, no, I, not really. I... I don't know. I kind of, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of new music like Gary does. So he's very helpful to have around in meetings with composers. <laughs> um, you can, you can you uh, do all the whizzing stuff. and banging. <laughs> yeah, he does oh, all, all the whizzing and banging. By, uh, yeah. The third bar, just, right? yeah. <laughs> just start sentences and hope that Gary has an end to them. <laughs> um, yeah, it really reminds me of, uh, what is it? Who's that guy? <laughs> um, <laughs> can I, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, there was one brilliant project we were doing with, with Gavin Osborne, who's a wonderful Manchester new music guy. And he... Flautist. Flautist yeah. and mm. composer and just maker of wonderful things. Mm. And he... We were improvising in these upstairs rooms in uh, Victoria Baths, just creating a big soundscape for people to wander around in, which was lovely. Wait, was uh, this with him? This mm. was with him, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. I think I saw this. It was a project called Ocean. Yeah, no, I did really see nice this with... Um, mm. Not Nina Whitman, with... Uh, with Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yeah. 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 And and Gavin, it was really fun. And Gavin just came up at one point and said, Yes, great guys. Um, could you just play a bit more Shirino? And I was like, Yes, great. He's pretty <laughs> much my favourite composer. And Gemma was like, Who's Shirino? And I was like, so I described it in like two sentences and she just started improvising. I was like, that's Shirino. <laughs> <laughs> so it works, you know. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's fine, that's fine. Um but yeah, I I guess I, I, I sort of, I didn't have a particularly musical upbringing that come from a musical family particularly, mm. but music was always there. It was always around. And I guess in a way, because I grew up with lots of different types of music being around, there wasn't like classical music wasn't a thing in our house really that much. Um, and uh, do you want to see who that <laughs> yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of the goats. There's definitely Some a floor with locking the door, isn't there? There is a floor. <laughs> It's a very, it was a tentative knock, that one. Okay. <laughs> Shall I carry on? Uh, we'll, wait, we'll wait till Gary gets back in. Yeah. And then um, we won't have a second door noise. Yes. Good. Good point. It is freaky, his... Um, his sort of knowledge of yeah i really envy that because i'm like you like i don't have i just don't have that i just stuff. don't have knowledge yeah just don't have it no no it's funny here he is hi 
We made us. <laughs> um, so. So you were talking about um, what was around in the house. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I grew up with lots of different music around and about in the house. Um, there definitely wasn't a sort of a. I mean, if there was a dominant voice, it was like Dire Straits rather than <laughs> anything classical. Um, What's your so, favorite Dire Straits song? Oh, you can't answer that. <laughs> I, yeah, I can't answer that. I'd need to give that a, a lot of thought. I like how you're saying, like, I'm just not going to... I'm not even going to go <laughs> not, there. Not I can't even do it. Top I feel three. Like... <laughs> like not, not in order? I don't think I know three Dire Straits songs. What? Okay. If you're introducing me to... How would you say it? What? Shirino? Shirino. Yeah. Then I'll introduce you to Dire Imagine a mashup of Dire Straits and Shirino. I, I don't think anyone will come out of that very well. <laughs> No, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I guess because because of that because and, and there was a lot of jazz around and there was a lot of making stuff up and and just sound being fun a fun thing. I don't know. In a way, it meant that I grew up without without music being sort of categorised too much, mm. um, which I think now is a really positive thing. Yeah, it was when I went to university. I, I, felt I had a bit of an inferiority complex about mm. it. But as I'm sort of growing up and, and we're now collaborating with lots of different types of music makers and lots of st- different styles of things, I think hopefully it's quite a positive thing. I just can't label stuff. Yeah. But yeah, but I sort of got into new music at uni. Mm. Um, Manchester is such an amazing place for that. There's such a you culture of it here. Of so I went to uni here yeah. first, yeah, and then did two years at the Northern. Right, yeah. And actually it was while I, while I was at uni, I had probably my most formative experience which also involved Gavin Osborne, um, who basically, we went to, um, I can't even remember who'd written a piece. Somebody had written a piece for Kairos, which was the electroacoustic ensemble that Gav run while I was there, which I was lucky enough to be part of. And we went to Belfast to the Sonorities Festival there to, to play one of these pieces that had been written for the ensemble. And it was great. We just had this one piece, but then there would sort of be other opportunities to get involved in some of the, some of the festival and loads of amazing stuff to go and see. There were incredible concerts, but I was, I was frantically trying to write my final year <laughs> composition at the time yeah. and was quite behind on it because I'd, I'd taken it to Phil Grange a couple of times and he'd said, that chord's good. Everything else has to go. <laughs> uh, that kind of thing. Um, so, so I was there like up against it, really worried about this. And Gav would just make me go to concerts instead of staying in the hotel room and writing my piece. Mm. He's like, if anything's going to serve you as a composer, it's coming to listen to this stuff, yeah. mm. which was so true. But mm. yeah, it was a stressful way to learn, but it was, it was a really amazing thing. But as part of it, he made me take part in a performance which I'd initially refused to do because it was improvising, which was something that I was terrified of. But he managed to twist my arm and I'm pretty sure he just outright lied to me about what it was going to be. Because <laughs> uh, what it ended up being was me stood in, on, on the stage in a spotlight on my own at this huge international new music conference, improvising, res- no, responding to what I heard <laughs> were the instructions. And that was it. That's it. Right. And it was one of those like, right, well, I'm here. I've got to do it and you've got mm. to own it and you've got to like shut up that part of your mind that's saying that you can't and you don't know what it is and you don't belong and you don't all of that you've just got to shut it up and try and uh, try and find something try and give an honest response to those instructions I guess and that felt like a really significant moment for me so yeah very grateful mm. to Gav for that so that was like your although first I hated improvis- him at the time <laughs> that was yeah that was my first experience of free improvisation yeah 
Cool. Yeah. So what was what instigated the Vonnegut Collective coming into existence then as as the pair of you? Um, or is so, it, sorry, is it just the pair of you? That's very presumptuous of me. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's a collective. So we, we run the collective and we invite all sorts of wonderful collaborators to join us. We've mm. kind of got a, a pool of players. I don't know how big We've it is. We've got about now. 15 members, yeah. yeah. Of um, instrumentalists and, but also from other genres. And so each project has a, a different lineup mm. of kind of whoever's right for the project doesn't necessarily it's not based on an instrument you know it's not it's not orchestration it's kind of what that person brings to the project it's got to be the right kind of yeah there's a lot of it for any uh, i forget the proper word for it but any instrumentation like open instrumentation schools isn't it we have a few we have a few pieces that that has fixed instrumentation but Mm. they tend to be odd because they tend to be written for the people that were right for that project. Yeah. So we might have a lineup at, like confronting Kaji was trumpet, violin, baritone, sax, electric guitar, trombone, and electronics, just because they were the right people to be in the room. So that's mm. what it ended up being written for. Mm. But actually, most of that is open scores. There's a lot of graphics yeah. and there's a lot of, so it could be recreated with. Yeah. Yeah. With and sometimes we, we get to commission composers and then we can kind of say well this is what the orchestration could be because we want to work with these people mm, yeah <laughs> and and generally that's that's the, the way we come at it and as much as we can we work with composer performers who become part of the, the ensemble so they're writing the music from the inside out rather than kind of turning it with a score to present to people they may or may not have met before you know it's something yeah. that we try and as much as possible develop together yeah how does that work writing from the inside out what does that mean um, we might have to ask somebody who's done it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, it, would you would you both just describe yourselves as, as performers rather than composer performers? Then you wouldn't put yourself in that category that you just described. I mean, we we have done a bit of that. Yeah, we have, and I think because a big part of it, from that point of view, it might be a good time to talk about Vonnegut because. The reason we used Kurt Vonnegut's name was mainly because of a letter that he wrote to some school kids just encouraging them to do art, not for fame or fortune, but to find out what's inside you to make your soul grow. And we thought that was a really, a really cool thing. And we found that over the years, a lot of people struggle to feel a connection with new music. I know that's a very broad thing to say, but just to keep it simple, I guess. And so we have found that by doing it, by making it either improvising or or writing or just playing it, we've found a connection that way. So we a big part of what we try to do as a collective is to encourage people to do that, to take part and to do art and find out what their own voice is. So it's kind of natural, I guess, that a certain part of being a performer in that space is that there'll be some creating going on as well. Um, mm. I certainly don't call myself a composer with a capital C, but I've made music for the collective. Mm. I've even written some of it down. But, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's just it feels like a natural part of what the collective does rather than sort of labelling. Yeah, things, yeah. But we and do, I understand it's a bit artificial to put those labels. No, it's fine. It's, yeah, fine. it's good to think yeah. about it. It's good to ask that question, I think. I want to come back to how you involve other people in a second. Mm. Um, but I know I asked you two questions at the beginning. <laughs> um, what is the origin story? How did you guys Oh yeah, so so we so we both just joined the BBC Philharmonic. Mm. We were on tour in Spain. Oh, hello. No, that's What's new. That? Who's that? It's Tilda, isn't it? Tilda Colgate. She's finding new ways now that yeah. we're in the door. We can we can leave that. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'm taking I'm taking an executive decision. Phone off hook. 
Yeah, so we'd both just joined the orchestra, BBC Philharmonic, and we were on tour in Spain, um, having a really lovely time. And after a concert one night in Oviedo, um, we were having a beer in the bar, and I got chatting to Gemma, and kind of quickly came out that we were both into new music. Your deep dark you, you secret. Bought, yeah, you, bought, <laughs> you, you called it like the dirty secret of Lachenman. <laughs> <laughs> what? You like his music too? Shh, don't tell anyone. Um, and we it can be of, quite frowned upon in some circles. It can, yeah. Really? And, yeah, yeah, I think so. I think... Oh, okay. I think certainly in the kind of the really, you know, mainstream kind of orchestral musicians who who would happily only play, you know, classical repertoire and nothing more modern than the Rite of Spring. <laughs> but maybe that's changing as well. I don't know. Mm. But we, we sort of discovered that we were both very passionate about it. And we sat long into the night and had a few drinks and talked about new music. And it became quickly apparent to me that here was someone who was really like-minded, but had a very different approach, different experience yeah, and then after, and then over the coming sort of weeks and months, we decided that we should do something. We should make something happen because while we were, I think we felt very lucky to to have this these jobs, mm. you know, playing jobs in a fantastic orchestra, which is amazing. It's kind of everything I'd worked towards. Mm. We also realised that if we if I wasn't careful, I could I would just do that job. I would just fulfil that one role for the rest of my career, and I didn't want to do that because. I'd had all this nice experience playing new music. I sort of realised that there were lots of other avenues that I still wanted to explore. So we decided to do something. We weren't sure what. We uh, designed a concert that night. Designed a concert, yeah. Oh, which did. never happened. It's never happened. And oh. and and the collectives become something very different now. I don't yeah. think it, that that wouldn't ever happen, would it? Mm. What was? There was going to be a, no. It's or fine. Is that there, top was a, a uh, fifth, there was a fifth year <laughs> anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> That's this year. It's happening. Yeah. Is this your fifth anniversary? This is our fifth yeah. anniversary yeah. in May. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I know, right? Cool. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very different concert. It's a very different concert. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. But it was going to be a Lachenmann string quartet. I can't remember which one it was. was it? I don't remember. Yeah. It's the one with that really long um, viola solo where the viola plays on the tailpiece of the instrument. And it's completely captivating yeah. for what feels like about half an hour. <laughs> um, and <laughs> Stravinsky... Um, Soldier's, Soldier's Tale. Tale. Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Um, which is yeah. Cool. Pretty good. Yeah, but it's not always ended up. It's not improvised. What we've done. No, yeah. no, exactly. There was no improvising in there. Yeah. There wasn't even. Yeah, there's not even a yeah. commission in there. So, did you bring the improvisation when you say meeting of two minds? Was that what you brought? I did sort of, but well, it's funny because Gary had more experience of improvising, having done uh, quite a bit of jazz in the past. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. But I I bullied you into improvising with me <laughs> <laughs> in a freer mm. way. It took a bit of persuading. I mean, I find that really interesting because they obviously they sound completely different, mm. but they're both improvised. Yeah. You know, if you have an improvised jazz solo, there's one set of contexts mm. compared to if you're in a, a like a Vonnegut collective concert mm. and maybe you're upstairs at Victoria Baths and you're reacting to the idea of water or mm-hmm. the baths. Or, mm. um, and they're both made up, but they've got very different contexts. Um, and I wondered what that was like trying to apply your jazz improv knowledge to something completely different. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels a lot more natural than that to me mm. because really all it was was um, that improvisation had always been a part of my playing, things I did. So, I mean, I, I was very lucky to, to play when I was growing up in all sorts of different contexts. So be it 
bands, brass bands, wind bands, orchestras, big bands, jazz ensembles. Some of those have improvisation in them. Some of them don't. But you don't think about that as a kid. If if improvisation is part of your, mm. you know, part of your your weekly musical life. And I went to improvisation classes with this old Hungarian man called Palko, which and I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about this. Yeah, you've not talked about it. Yeah. Uh, I forgot about it for a long time because it was just a few months. I would go along to the... I lived in Norway and the, at the music school there, there was, a, there was an old Hungarian man who taught improvisation. And it was kind of coming from a jazz perspective, um, but it was also very open. And so whoever was there could play. There was clarinets, there was some string instruments, and there was kind of a rhythm section as well. And he would just present us with tunes. Um, and we'd kind of we'd learn, the, learn the tune and then just open it up and, and improvise. And everyone would just have a go. Mm. And the age of, you know, 13, 14, this was really, really cool and really exciting. But I, but I never felt like, you know, going forward as well, that oh, when, I, when I play jazz, I improvise. And when I play classical music, I don't improvise. You know, that, that, never, mm. that yeah. was never a thing. And even when you practice, you know, I'd, uh, I, I have to bully myself to practice um, stuff that I'm supposed to practice. <laughs> you know, I'm happy to just make things up. But obviously it's good to play, you know, to play etudes and to play sort of disciplined things. Otherwise, because, you know, I think everyone, when they're practicing, they're kind of improvising a bit, aren't they? Or they certainly should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, that was my thing. So improvisation was just, just uh, something I was very comfortable with. And when I decided to not try to be a jazz musician for a living and be a classical musician, if you're going to really, you know, pigeonhole the dichotomy there, um, then... Yeah, then I realised that I wasn't improvising anymore as part of my musical output, as part of my practice. And so going back to this first night when we realised and, and these, first, these early days of the collective, what I think I really appreciated about meeting Gemma and what we kind of, what, we, what started to crystallise was that she had these different experiences. I think I'm right in saying sort of, you know, of, of education of like leading workshops, of being in different settings where music is, you know, is a, is a really like, happy fun tool to do lots of things and that was something that i had no experience Mm. of and i think that's in a way where this kind of free approach came in to it as well yeah maybe so did you have improv around you in your musical education because i i found that very interesting because in mine you know had a really good musical education but when we went to big band there was all these there was always shifty looks about oh you know Mm. who's who's taking the solo very uncomfortable um we never had improv classes so i don't know if maybe that's it you kind of thrown in it everyone does it and Mm. then eventually you're just like oh yeah you know whatever like it's just another thing exactly rather than it being my thing Mm -hmm. that i'm the improv guy or they're the Mm -hmm. improv person Mm -hmm. it just happens because it's just another part of your skill set whereas for me i suppose that reflects my experience of it is they are separate Mm. yeah yeah, and mine was as well. Yeah, so mm. it wasn't part of my education. I um, I didn't play violin that much at school. I played saxophone. Oh. And so all my kind of school ensembles were like the big band and that kind of thing. But I was always the one that I, I, I was most successful at looking at the floor and managing not to overtake any solos because it just <laughs> the thought of it just terrified me so much. Right. And very occasionally I'd have a so I'd have a solo, but it would be like a written solo, particularly in like Sound of the Swinging Symbol or something like that. Because I could get my fingers around the stuff, but I just um, the thought of improvising just scared me too much. I was it was petrifying. So I, th- I guess because of that, and, and luckily there were other 
musicians in the school who were more confident with that. Um, there was sort of, you could, so it would always be the same, like two or three people that would take solos for the whole seven years that you were at school. Mm, yeah. So yeah. it was great. So I was kind of off the hook. And I did, <laughs> my sax teacher did occasionally manage to persuade me to like do fours with her or with the next student or something, which, which helped. But then even going, when I got to university, I was still terrified of it and, and managed to last three years in the university big band with, and, and I didn't do an improvised solo until my very last concert. No way. Um, cause I was told I wasn't allowed to leave the band without having done one Good. solo. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, and so, so with uh, talking about the different contexts, do you find that, so in jazz, you've got, you know, you maybe you're doing fours or you've yeah. got your eight bar or your 16 yeah. bar, or you've got kind of a certain chord progressions you used to, do you find there's certain structures that you, you, you find yourself doing in, in this new context? Like, do you find yourself fading in? And building and then mm. fading away again or for me it's funny because I think the thing that always frightened me and still frightens me still of improvising in a jazz context is the harmony mm. it's just something that's always I've always struggled with and we had it the other day like I'll have a strong sense of something but I won't be able to describe it and I won't be able to recreate it and um yeah you were playing some chords and I I suggested one needed to sound a bit more open because it sounded mm. quite closed. And I, I couldn't have even, yeah, I couldn't have told you anything about what those chords were, but I knew there was something that mm-hmm. I felt needed to be, but, but I, I wouldn't, yeah. And I still struggle with harmony in that way. But in terms of the free, freer improvisation that we do with the collective, I don't get scared when we improvise at all. And I think because there's much more freedom and much, it, it's more intuitive, isn't it? It's, there aren't, there aren't any rules and there aren't any like deep traditional structures you really can just play what you feel and respond to what you hear as an individual and nobody else could do that in the way that you would because nobody else is the same as you and 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 sort of celebrating that is what we try to do I definitely am really interested in 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 developing motifs so I've noticed that I tend to play quite early on in an improv if not starting it Mm -hmm. And I also tend to bring back that material at the end, just because I like the ABA thing to make a bit of coherence and to, but maybe it's a cop out because it's such a neat sort of easy structure. I don't know. What do you think? Um, yeah, that's really interesting because we, we, we recorded lots of our improvs. Oh yeah. That's um, worth mentioning. Yeah. Gemma had this great idea. Oh, it wasn't my idea. I think oh, so, Django Bates had a really oh, good okay. idea. So you nicked Django Bates' <laughs> idea. If you're going to nick ideas, you know. <laughs> Because um, that's what he'd done with his one of his trios, right? Yeah, with so they rec- trio. Yeah, that they recorded everything they did for a year or something. Yeah, they did an improv a day or a week for yeah. a year and recorded them and was it just to get for to know each their other. Fans or just no, it's for them. For it's them. for their own because yeah. they'd not worked together before. This is. I'm sorry, Django, if this is wrong. Um, <laughs> He's probably. I'm sure you're listening. I think they. But yeah, I think they literally did like one slash three six five to the next day it would be mm. two slash so they they did this this and that was the way that they got to know each other and each other's playing they just come into a room with no agenda and just play record it take it away and and learn each other's styles and voices and find that find their own way That's through really that cool. so we tried to do something similar it wasn't really quite as cool. no but it was regimented. it was incredibly instructive though so we have v1 v2 v3 mm. yeah and you sort of listen back and, I mean, for me, the one thing that I would notice straight away is that you'll come up with, with an idea, with a motif or something, and you just don't stick with it for long enough. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's something that we've found in, in, 
more recently as well in tutoring improvisation in leading workshops or improvisations with groups is that people will have an idea play it for maybe even 10 20 seconds and then stop mm. and you listen back to it and you go oh you had 10 minutes of material mm-hmm. there you know milk it for all it's worth yeah uh, and really develop it so that's that's one thing that i've learned from that and 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 it's but but, but going back to what you saw your question about about kind of comparing it to jazz i think it's it's kind of for me it's more about setting up the parameters for for good intuitive music making i mean karl heinz stockhausen marcus stockhausen marcus karl heinz son is this amazing trumpet player and improviser and we were lucky enough to study with him at his his house one day when we were in germany Mm. and he talks about he doesn't really talk about improvisation he talks about it as intuitive music making and that's that's i'm really on board with that Mm. you know it's and, and and it goes back to what I was saying before about, about anyone being able to do it, you know, if you set up the right parameters, then whatever anyone contributes can be really meaningful and really worthwhile. Yeah, Whereas, whatever, their, whatever their level of playing and expertise and whatever their knowledge or whatever is, like wherever people are at, it's kind of, a, it's a real leveler. It's a, it's a really nice thing because any sound you make is, is welcome and as long as it's honest and has integrity mm. and you really mean it, then it's, it's going to have musical value as well yeah which if you compare that to like you're saying uh, about about jazz and about the you know it can be a fairly complex chord sequence and playing you know what's deemed to be the right kind of harmony on that that's 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 a that can be a lifetime's work can't it mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. whereas stockhausen and also some of the other people who have really influenced us um calling this Kaju, you know mm-hmm. did scratch orchestras who improvised and they could be complete amateurs don't have any kind of musical formal training, but they can get involved with some sort of sound creation, sound exploration. Um, and uh, what's his name? Brilliant. <laughs> Shirinu? <laughs> no. <laughs> Tilda, Tilda, Tilda Colgate. Um, who am I thinking of? I really who don't know. Book? You wrote the book. Oh, yeah. um, John Stevens. John Stevens. Yeah, yeah. So John Stevens also is a massive. Is a massive. Sorry, <laughs> brain went dead then. Um, he's a massive influence, and we use his his um, his book. What's the book called? It's called Search and Reflect. Search and Reflect. It's yeah. a fantastic yeah. tool. And that's yeah. like advice on being intuitive. It's um it's a set of uh, of improvisation games essentially mm. to develop different skills. Um, right. With yeah, it's, and really 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 nicely made and again it can be played by anyone yeah we've done it with kind of theater groups who, who again have no real musical training um, yeah. and the results are incredible yeah just and they're really them. nice the way that they're written they translate really well across art forms as well so they're specifically music based but the idea of generating a motif and the idea of putting your attention somewhere whilst creating something else that's uh, almost become subconscious and and all these different things can be physicalized or can be put on paper as as art or um yeah there's there's they're really there's kind of such a they're a real treasure chest right mm. so it's almost like a, a piece it's like a set of instructions exactly and yeah parameters like yeah you say. and yeah. they build it really gradually he's really clear there's step-by-step instructions for each one mm. right they're really lovely things mm. brilliant yeah. hugely recommend them to anyone definitely so i guess he's a good composer yeah he was a percussionist wasn't he yeah, so another another nice thing that happened was that after a few years of of the Wagner Collective existing, I was in the pub with my brother. My brother's a, a drummer and a composer, and I mentioned John Stevens, and I was like, "Oh, this guy, you know, he's amazing. I've come across him." And my brother went, 
yeah, yeah, I know him, yeah. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah, before he died, yeah. I, you know, it turned out that this guy had inspired my brother to become, to, to move to London and to become a musician. Wow. I didn't even know. <laughs> so, you know, sort of like 20 years apart, um, mm. he'd influenced us in very different ways. Yeah, it's yeah. funny, one of those weird brother things. Yeah, yeah. it's freaky. <laughs> That's really interesting, like, that so many things can be a composition in, mm. in terms of who can write it as much as, mm. as uh, the format of it. What's the difference between a good composition, like a good set of instructions or a good stimulus, and then mm. one that doesn't work as well? What makes a good one? I, I'm sure different people would have different interpretations of that. Um, and thank goodness, because otherwise everyone would just write the same thing yeah. all the time. Um, for me, I think it's going to sound potentially a little bit wanky, so I'm sorry about that. But I think if it's got integrity and a clear vision... It can't be bad. If there's anything gimmicky there or if there's anything that's sort of there for the sake of it or a bit half-assed, you can tell whether it's a written score or a graphic score or a carefully composed piece. So is integrity purpose? I think it's just a real honest sharing of a genuine experience from a composer or something, a story or, a, or something to express. It doesn't, it could be anything. But, um, but I think if, if it's really meant... So does that involve them telling you what it's about? No, not necessarily. That's that's where the clarity of intention has to come in through the instructions. Right, for okay. Me, for me, what yeah. do you reckon? It has yeah. to express that's, it itself. That's very vague and probably a little bit unhelpful as an answer. But No, I think that's I think that's fair enough. And that's kind of how we as a collective approach things. You know, it's often about because because you know, people talk about telling stories through music a lot these mm. days. And that's great. And 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 we we definitely, you know, we try and do that as well. But I don't know, I feel like it, that can sometimes be a bit of a cliche. Instead, mm. of, so instead of kind of what story are you trying to tell, if, if it becomes a little bit more uh, insular than that in a way, that it's about meaning, you know, about finding a meaning in a piece. And I, I don't feel comfortable taking to the stage without really understanding the meaning of the piece that we're going to play. And obviously an improvisation is... And it can be your meaning. Exactly, It doesn't have yeah. to be explicitly told by no, the composer. It definitely, can be... yeah. So, so like, like you were saying, we might interpret um, a piece of music that has, uh, you know, elements of freedom in it, elements of improvisation in it. We might, we might approach it in our way because we're, we can only really use our language, like my personal language on, on the trumpet or whatever we're playing. So it's going to be different whoever plays it. But as long as I feel like I'm getting some resonance from this compositional idea that has some meaning to it for me, then we're okay. <laughs> mm. If that makes sense. And I suppose that's comparable to notated music in the sense that you're only really able to really express what's on the page if you actually understand what it's trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. But in this case of improvisation, there's much more scope for what you have to say to, to come out the other side, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, definitely. You have to keep yourself honest you know, you not fall back on your licks and tricks. And like you were saying before, do you find right. that an improvisation always starts quietly and then gets louder mm. and then dies out at the end? You know, when you have to go against those things. And just as any improvising musician and jazz musician, you could just play your your thing and mm. it, would, it would sound all right every time. You have to challenge yourself and keep yourself always striving for more, I think. And that can involve, um, yeah, pushing yourself or pushing the the... The, 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 the sound possibilities so that you're really exploring um, again if you listen back to improvisation that you, you've done you might 
you might sometimes think, oh, I could have pushed that more. I could have used more sounds. I could have I could have used more dynamics. I could have you know I could be more extreme, or or extreme with the duration as well. You know, to push yourself through it uh, mm. through the the the, the we, we found haven't we that there are mm. kind of comfortable um, uh, durations of improvisation. So you if you improvise for kind of like what is it like four minutes or so, that's, that can be quite an easy place to stop. Mm. Or you could push yourself through to kind of seven or eight minutes, whatever. But then we've learned as well that what happens if you go further. What, what if you what if you go up 20 minutes you know and i think some, it's funny we were introduced to an idea of actually timing improvs recently we did a weekend of improvisation in glasgow with a group called iceberg which was a really fantastic thing mm. and they they have literally have a, a, a stopwatch at the front of the stage that they can check in with so they know how long they're going and they they work to a time and we've never done that before it's always just the kind of the natural arc of the music and finishing when it finishes but it was really interesting kind of changing that approach and letting those natural endings appear because they do musically but then pushing through because you've got another 12 minutes to play mm. and then seeing like and and then you'll have another natural ending and you push through that as well and it's sort of what pushing into what feels quite uncomfortable or quite unnatural is um sometimes where the the good stuff is leaning into the discomfort and yeah. finding that's something really that you interesting wouldn't actually for do because I, I meditate and yeah clang I meditate <laughs> <laughs> was, that, was that a little bowl that's my Tibetan bowl impression yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, and um, so I, I went on a meditation course recently mm. and you, you always sit for an hour at the group sitting three times a day and you'll get to four minutes mm. <laughs> and you'd be like okay that's nice thank you uh, all yeah. right okay yeah. so we've still got sure. yeah, 56 yeah. minutes left and 20 and 30 oh, and then yeah. 50 and you know if you've been there for like a week you kind of you kind of got a feel for when an hour is so maybe a few minutes before you're like okay i think i'm i should be finished about now but like you say it's when if you just keep sitting there or if you keep just going with the music, you just find different places, you know, you kind of, mm. you go deeper with it. Yeah. So. Mm. It's like something else we discovered recently, which is that apparently um, there are tempos that mm. are really kind of um, easy for, for, for us as, as humans to kind of, kind of be innate. in. Yeah. Mm. So if you, if you start at a tempo, say like, say, you know, 40 beats per minute, you'll kind of generally rush a bit until you get up to about 70. <laughs> and if you start at kind of, you know, a uh, hundred and, you know, 126, you'll gradually slow down eventually to mm. get to about 70, where everything is kind of in the middle ground, you right, know? Yeah. And, and I don't want my improvisations mm. to all be middle ground, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I suppose that's that's on the onus of the people who who first put material into the room, isn't mm -hmm. it? In mm. terms of setting the... Yeah. yeah. Interesting, yeah. So why are you doing the edits? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> Gemma. <laughs> um, Gemma can take this one. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it is my fault. Um, so I um, have a dear friend called Gemma Wareham who was at university uh, with us, and she is part of the Barclay Ensemble. And we were at another friend's wedding, um, and Gemma and I were sat together and chatting about projects and what we've been up to and how things were going. And she's also partly responsible for the for the collective existing because. Just as we were getting cold feet, I she she appeared and con mm. convinced us to 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 really push for it and make it happen. So she's she's been quite influential in in our development. But um, but she they just the Barclay Ensemble had just been doing um, the Adders piano quintet, mm -hmm. and I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. I knew I liked Adders' music, what I'd heard of it anyway. 
and was really interested to hear her talk about it. And she said, you know, it's the hardest thing they've ever played. It took 48 hours to rehearse it. It's only a 20 minute piece. It's this huge undertaking. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> this sounds, sounds very interesting. And immediately went home and found a recording and had a listen and was just blown away by it. I just I absolutely loved it listen to it again and again and again. But this idea that of, of what she'd said about there being 48 hours of rehearsal felt, it just, I kind of, I couldn't shake that idea. It felt really significant. And, and this thing of, like we said, trying to in, in, include composers in, in the process. We'd worked with Talis Rennie before on a, on a piece, on this piece confronting Cardew, uh, which was all about the process of trying to play Cardew's Autumn 60. Right. So he documented and made a piece and sort of artistic representation of us grappling with this really complicated music, trying to make head or tail of it. So it kind of seemed like the obvious thing to do to try and play this piece and to have Tullis in the room to make a piece about the process of it. So that's what we're trying to do. And because it's our fifth anniversary and it feels nice that it's a quintet and it yeah. feels nice that Tullis was, he was in the very first concert that we did which will be, it will be exactly five years to the day mm -hmm. beforehand. So it felt nice to kind of include him in that. And we wanted to do something big. We wanted to do something to mark um, the anniversary. Yeah. Mm. So uh, how do you feel about not being in the <laughs> piano quintet, Gary? Um, I got over the initial uh, <laughs> shock and heartbreak. No, I'm joking. No, I mean, it's an incredible piece. And I've been present at some of the 48 hours mm. and I've loved it. It's been fascinating. Partly, you know, hearing it kind of come together, seeing five musicians that I really respect kind of grapple with it and, and, and talk about it and, and rehearse in this, you know, really breaking things down. Because it's one thing to do it with a, with a conductor who's kind of, you know, instructing everyone what to do. But it's another thing to as a as a as a true chamber piece, you know. Mm. Um, so there's that that's been enjoyable. But also then having half an eye on Tullis, who's just been sitting there listening through the headphones and just jotting down ideas here and there and kind of almost trying to second guess which sounds in the room might make it into the final mm -hmm. piece. Because, you know, earlier you talked about what it, what it means to, to commission a composer but have them within the ensemble because mm. he's not playing in that piece either. In fact, he's not playing at all, but he's, he's been there in the room. You know, mm. he's part of this project. Is he there for all the rehearsals? Is he there for yeah, the 48 the hours? 48 hours, yeah. yeah. I like that. That's a layer. That's a layer that you know he's been there for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, he said on the first day. I mean, I sh he sh you should talk to him because he's a fascinating guy. But he said after a couple of hours, he got a bit, a bit of cabin fever. He didn't know if he mm. could make it because it's such intense music. Really and, it was and we were in a very small room. Small room. <laughs> and he's first a big week. guy. <laughs> he's, a, he's six foot seven, and took yeah took up his fair share of the corner of that space. Yeah, so it's like your meditation in a way. You know, mm. you, you sort of you mm. get into it, and then you go, okay, right, I'm done now. Oh no, I've got another forty seven and a half hours to go of this. Wow. Yeah, but then and and he also you know took the the decision to not study the piece beforehand, so he came into it fresh. Right. So his knowledge of this piece is hearing our quintet, which I love as well. I didn't realize this until a few days in, but he. So and of course it was a long time until we actually were playing any of it through. And so his first experience of hearing the piece as a whole was our first run through, which is kind of that's amazing as well. Having kind of seen it all this these fragments of you know whatever chaos come together and and, and the clarity eventually emerge. That was his his first experience of it as well, which is kind of 
I really, I really like that. Yeah. I can't wait to hear what he's, what he's come up with. So he's since then been away in Mexico on a sabbatical composing this piece. Mm. And yeah, we've had a few little workshops of, of sound and ideas from him, but we don't really know what it's going to be like. Mm. And yeah, yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, it we, is. Can't, we can't wait to do it. Um, yeah. It's still frightening. Mm. <laughs> how, yeah, how, how many hours? So as of um, March... Seventh. Seventh. Yeah. How many hours are you in of your 48? We've done 42. We've 42. just saved. We've saved one day for nearer the time. Mm. And to um, to spend a bit of time with Tullis's stuff as well when, right. when that's done. So we, we meet again on the 1st of May to do one day. And then we're in. We're into the the, the proper kind of the, the day before the concert kind of territory mm. after that. Nice. So, yeah, we've done 42 of the 48. Yeah. I, what I love about it is that is that. Yes, it's kind of terrifying. It's this incredible piece, incredible complexity and, and, and difficult piece to play. But the way in for us and the way in for the audience, you know, the listeners, I feel like is going to be not terrifying. Mm. You know, it's the opposite. I mean, that's of kind that. of the point, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, this How is... How so? What, for the audience? Because I, I think that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of by no means kind of apologising for you know, complexity of a new music. Mm. But at the same time, we're giving we give them a, a step in, a way in, because we're gonna we're gonna show them what the quintet has been through in learning this piece together in a room for 48 hours before they're about to play it to you. And that's what Tullis's piece is. So there'll be sounds from the rehearsals, there'll be um spoken word, you know, just him asking asking the quintet and me um questions about, you know, How's it going? Like, where are we up to? What are the challenges? Right. So the audience have a real insight into what it means. Because like Jim was saying, it's only a 20 minute piece mm. and it's so complex. It's so rich. Mm. There's so much there mm. that it feels like it's not enough just to sit down, you know, walk on with a, with a suit on, play it. The audience perhaps walk off. Like, that's not enough. That's yeah. not how we approach, yeah. you know, music. We wouldn't do that and then do a different piece in the second half that had no relation to it and then go and have a drink in the bar. That's mm. not that's not what we're into at all. And the idea is that by the time the audience hear the adders, they, they'll have been on the, the journey with us to get mm. there. Mm. So hopefully it will give the adders a, a particularly a deeper meaning maybe. But also their connection with us as individuals will hopefully be enhanced from having been through that together. Mm. Did you think of any other ways of documenting it? Or you're like, this guy, oh, this guy is the this guy. guy. This yeah. guy. Yeah. yeah Rather than, like, you know, for instance, like live streaming the whole thing or something like that, so that they literally yeah. could be, you know, if they it's committed 40 hours of their life to you. that told us. It's a really, he has a very beautiful and unique way of layering. I was, I was listening last night to his, um, he made an, a beautiful thing called Muscle Memory. And in the sleeve notes for that, it's basically just an email from somebody that he'd sent it to, like writing about their experience of it. And and it, he picks up on the the layers that Tullis manages to manages to put across and manages to include. Um, it's and and the sense of time and the sense of space and connection between people that that is all part of that and it all happens at once. And that's something that we wouldn't be able to do as beautifully and successfully as I'm sure he will. Mm. Brilliant. Thank you both for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having us. Big fan of the podcast. Oh, Congratulations you. on the yeah. podcast. Have you listened? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm brilliant. a subscriber. Love you. I wrote a poem, <laughs> I wrote a poem and everything. You wrote, uh, wrote uh, a poem. Have, you? Yeah. have you? Have you tweeted us? No, I will do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we've, we've had one in so far. Oh, okay. Oh. I, I love it. I yeah. love it so much. It's pretty dark, man. 
<laughs> Dark Christmases. I need to I need to make a little asterisk with regards to my four word poem, which is the reason the word death was in there in regards to Christmas was because of Greg's poem. <laughs> sure. My dad would, it went straight over his head and he was just like, oh, death. Oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> I was like, no, no, it's great. It's because yeah. of Greg's poem. Yeah. I've been reading yeah. Greg's poem on the way to the, the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I'll send it in. 